1: welcome that we are glad that you've chosen to give us this time to share this time with us as part of the heritage family um brock is out of town this week and as you can as you can see from the bumper video he's he's invited me to step into his sermon series uh, but with a little bit of a tweak Uh, and so that's what we're doing this morning Uh, so you need to understand about me one thing i am a part of your missions committee uh, here at heritage and brock has asked me to share a few of the things that where we've been and where we're headed. And I want you to hear, I use those pronouns really intentionally. Your missions committee, where we've been, where we're headed. There's currently only about a dozen or so of us that are on the missions committee here at Heritage, but we take very seriously the charge that we've been given from our leadership here at Heritage to be about kingdom business, but specifically the kind of kingdom business that's in line with Heritage's mission and vision. Now, if you hang out with this church long enough, eventually you're going to have somebody tell you and probably drill it into your head a couple of times that we are about leading people into thriving relationships with Jesus. So your missions committee, our small little group, we're a subset of the heritage family that's all about listening and discovering and discerning how God wants to use this family to be about leading unreached people groups around the world into, say it with me, thriving relationships with Jesus. And this, this is the kind of thing that's, that, that's gonna happen so that lives get transformed and families get transformed and communities will be transformed to be a part of bringing his kingdom, as it already is in heaven, down to earth, all of which is pretty exciting stuff. So this summer, as has already been talked about a couple times, we're walking through what Brock has called flannel graph favorites. We're taking a new look at some of those old stories As has been mentioned, many of us, the first time we heard these stories were under the tutelage of of some of those senior saints, many of whom have gone on to be with the Lord. Um, This whole summer, I've been thinking about Miss Dorothea James, uh, the woman who taught second grade Bible school at the 10th and Broad Church Christ in Wichita Falls, Texas, for 62 years before the Lord took her home. That's three generations of, of kids who learned these stories underneath Miss James. Uh, but many of you also you're just hearing these stories for the first time. Uh, maybe you missed them along the way or you're new to the faith and if so, I hope you're having a great time because these are some great stories. Uh, we're learning a lot of neat things. Now, I used to drive my bride a little nuts when she would catch me filling in the rougher details to some of these stories uh, as I, as I was reading through the storybook bibles that we read to our kids at night. My argument was always that if I fill in those stories it keeps me and them a little bit uh, interested a little bit longer. Um, she never really bought it though. Uh, now many of these stories deal with some pretty complicated plots and they've got hard parts to them. But throughout all these stories, and this is Brock's point all summer long for us, we're going to learn a lot about the hero in each of these stories. The lord of all the very best stories, of course, our father in heaven. That's the hero that we're learning about through these stories. Now another point to to hearing the old stories again, is that we're gonna discover their ongoing relevance for us. This fresh look shows us pretty vividly that that these stories still matter. So today, we're gonna be hearing some of our new stories that we get to be involved in, learning some of the nuts and bolts of how they happen, as well as seeing what we can learn about God from what He's doing in and around the Mediterranean Rim. Now, I need to warn you, as we tell our story today, you are going to be frustrated by the lack of detail. To that, I would first say, welcome to Flannelgraph. The next thing that I would say to you is that all of the people in our story have given us permission to use their first names and the general location of where they live in the world, but for security reasons, they've asked us to withhold their last names and the actual cities where they serve on anything that we're putting online, which we're streaming this online as we speak. So that's why you're going to be frustrated by the lack of detail. So with that preamble, our story begins with Peter. And Ria. Now, Peter and Rhea's backstory is pretty cool. And it's a story that, that's for another day, perhaps, and another day and another medium. Maybe you'll get to hear their story in greater detail. But, but anytime a Hungarian man meets a Japanese woman in an ESL class in these United States, and then together they go to serve Muslim refugees in the southern part of Europe, that's a story worth knowing. So we'll come back to it someday. Uh, but for now, let's just say our story starts with Peter and Ria. One day, God called them to serve Muslim refugees in the Mediterranean Rim in a place that often serves as the first landing spot after they escape the country that's, that's trying to kill them. And Peter and Rhea said, Yes. They showed up in a major city in southern Europe and they began asking God to show them whom he has prepared to hear about Jesus. Now, in the meantime, I want to introduce you to a guy named Fred. Fred's from out east. He's Persian by descent. Fred's backstory also needs to be told someday. Uh, but that's the kind of backstory that uh, both the good and the hard parts are probably best told uh, over a meal that involves falafel and Greek, um, Greek salads, things like that. Uh, Fred is forced to run from his home country where he, when he began to meet Jesus. Actually, he was first told about Jesus by a friend of his, an American co-worker at the oil and gas company where they both worked. So Fred has to flee. And Fred eventually lands in the city where Peter and Rhea are serving. Through mutual friends, they find each other, and Fred keeps meeting Jesus. Over the next months, Fred learns more about who Jesus is and really who Fred is in the kingdom in Christ. And he's intentionally discipled by Peter and Rhea and by some of their friends for whom security matters so much we can't even say their first names online. And this goes on for a while until Fred eventually is given papers to move out west. And Fred lands in a city, it's got about 300,000 Muslims in it. And as a former Muslim himself, who's interested in being a disciple maker, suits Fred just fine. Next, I want to introduce you to Sarah and Ethan. Sarah's actually just as tall as Ethan. I'm not sure what happened. I think it's perspective, is what we're dealing with here. Uh, Sarah and Ethan, have a pretty cool backstory. I know it's cool because they were actually, Sarah was actually one of our kids' babysitters back when we lived in a magical kingdom called Alabama on the far side of the Mississippi River. Uh, So God God called them to serve Muslims who've come from Mediterranean Rim countries that have since been resettled to Western Europe. And Sarah and Ethan said, yes. So they got on a plane, and they moved to a city that has 300,000 Muslims living in it, and one former Muslim named Fred, who's now their friend, who is now taking them around, and even in their first early months of time there, introducing them to pockets of Persians that might become groups of believers. All about, as they're all about making disciples, that make disciples who lead each other into thriving relationships with Jesus. Now, you're probably wondering why exactly did I pick these stories, or more specifically, how are they our new favorites? Out of all the stuff that God's up to around this world, why do we care so much about what He's doing in these two places in the Mediterranean Rim? Well, it's because we at Heritage have been blessed to play a small role in these stories. Let's go. This is us, by the way, this Heritage. Let's go back to Peter and Rhea. Peter and Rhea are still primarily working with the Muslims that live in their city. But now, some of their friends, the people that they've been discipling, have been, re- have been scattered all over Western Europe. And as a part of the ongoing discipleship, Peter and Rhea need to get there and be with them in person. They, they need to see where they've landed. They need, they need to continue to have conversations in person with them. And so Heritage was invited to partner with them to make those trips possible, and Heritage said yes. And because of that, Peter and Rhea have been able to go and visit disciple-makers like Fred is a great thing. We've been given that privilege. And in fact, even as we speak today, Peter and Ria are wrapping up one of those trips that we at Heritage funded. Uh, and so they were able to visit leaders in three cities, uh, bringing along with them one of their main leaders from the city in which they still live. So I've actually asked Mary Lee Travitz to come and lead us in prayer right now as we're going to pray for Peter and Ria's trip, the people that they visited. Uh, Mary Lee is also a part of your missions committee. Uh, she's one of the people that leads us in prayer regularly, and I've learned a great deal about prayer from my friend. So go ahead and lead us in prayer, Mary Lee.
0: Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Peter and Ria. Thank you for Fred. Thank you for Ethan and Sarah. Thank you for the cities and the nations that they live in. Thank you for. Uh, thank you for bringing heritage into this story. Thank you for continuing to do. Uh, everything that you want to do in your world to bring people's hearts to you and to continue showering your love on your children. Um, We ask that you continue to make us into your image in every way and that you continue to allow us to partner with you in all of the cool stuff that you're doing in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you, friend, for praying with us. But our role in this story doesn't stop here, friends. We've been able to, to partner with Peter and Rhea, but we've also been able to partner with Ethan and Sarah. So Ethan and Sarah had a lot of the stuff they needed. They had a supporting church. They had their visas in hand. They had most of their monthly support raised. They had even figured out how to get their cat from Alabama into this Western European city. So they had a lot of stuff, but what they lacked was the funding to top off what they needed for their move, specifically Thinking about themselves last, they'd raised everything they needed except money to buy some furniture for the apartment. And so, because we at Heritage not only believe in making disciples among unreached people groups, but in having furniture in our homes, Heritage said yes. And we were able to partner with Sarah and Ethan as they were landing in their city and and furnished their home. Then, because we did this, your missions committee was given the privilege a couple of weeks ago of meeting with them online and through the magic of Zoom, we were able to pray through the corners of their home, dedicating that space from a distance to the service of our God, because we said yes. But the thing is, our role in this story is not gonna stop there. Yes, we've been able to help Peter and Rhea make some visits, and yes, we've been able to help Ethan and Sarah land in the first place, but these are some, only our first steps into the work that's being done in the Mediterranean Rim. We believe that God is preparing a family for us, And that God is preparing us as a family for them to be able to launch a family from heritage to go and make disciples in the Mediterranean Rim. We don't know who that is yet, uh, but we believe that's coming. And so we're we're asking you to join us in praying that God would reveal that family to us soon. So this morning you've heard me toss around a word that is technically a made-up word. It's the word medrim. I want to take just a a slight detour here and explain to you what we're talking about when we talk about MedRim Initiative, the Mediterranean Rim Initiative. We're actually talking about a combination of three things. First of all, the MedRim Initiative is about a place. We are focusing on work among unreached people groups in the countries that surround the Mediterranean or the people who come from those countries. And when we say unreached people groups, we're talking about people that not only have virtually no chance, statistically, of of ever being evangelized, we're talking about people who the odds say will never even meet a believer their entire life. That's who we're trying to reach, those kinds of unreached people groups around the Mediterranean. Secondly, it's about a people. This is a work that is focused on unreached Muslims. Now, no believer, no disciple maker in their right mind would ever turn away their next door neighbor who says, hey, can you tell me about this Jesus that you're here to serve? obviously, but these are people who have been sent to focus on Muslims, to help them begin to meet Jesus, whether they are Muslim refugees that are passing through Europe or they are Muslims who are well settled into their homes in northern Africa. Third, it's about a process. The workers in the Mediterranean Rim Initiative have been trained in and will primarily be using a method of outreach that's known as disciple-making movements, or DMM for short. Now, because flannel graph is what we do this summer, I have a short video that looks kind of flannel graphy uh, that can help you understand a little bit about what I'm talking about when I say disciple-making movement. So let's go ahead and run that.
0: The last thing Jesus told his disciples to do was to go everywhere and teach everyone to obey everything he asked them to do. But how? How were 11 uneducated and unsophisticated Jewish men supposed to make disciples in all the different cultures and languages of the world? They had no money, no power, no organization, and no leader. And to make matters worse, they were outcasts in their own society and religion. The disciples didn't seem to have anything, and yet they changed everything. What they did have was a life-changing experience with Jesus, a willingness to simply obey, the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, yes, and lots of context. What we call today a social network. Here's what happened. Everything started with prayer. Then came the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. After Pentecost, people visiting Jerusalem from faraway places went home and told their friends and family what God had done. And when those people passed on what they had experienced, the good news about Jesus spread like wildfire. Post-Pentecost social networking is how the gospel went viral. That was over 2,000 years ago. So how are we doing today? There is some good news and some not-so-good news. The good news, the number of Christians is increasing. The not-so-good news, the percentage of Christians is stuck. So what's the problem? and how can we solve it? The biggest issue seems to be that not all believers in Jesus are actually obedient followers of Jesus. The main job of being a disciple of Jesus is to make more disciples, but not many people are doing that today. In the first century, what created a spiritual revolution was disciples making disciples who made disciples. Dozens became hundreds, hundreds became thousands, and before too long, thousands had multiplied to millions. All because ordinary people simply obeyed what Jesus told them to do and taught those who responded to do the same. We think this is an idea whose time has come again. We call it disciple making movements or DMM for short. It's a movement because it can multiply naturally. So how do you start a disciple making movement? It's actually very simple. The engine is what we call a discovery Bible study. Here's how a discovery Bible study works. As God reveals a leader within a community, a disciple-making coach helps them to form a group from among their friends and family. The group starts a process of direct interaction with God's Word. The format is simple. What does the passage say? What does it mean? What will I do in response? And finally, who can I tell so another group can start? Personal discovery, immediate obedience, and consistent replication. Are the launching pad for new movements. Every individual has a unique circle of influence. No two are exactly alike, but everybody's circle overlaps with many others. The intersection points are where the movements take off. No matter what country, language, or culture, people share what is important to them with those they care about. Normally, when we dream about the future, we want to leave behind the old and embrace the new. But perhaps as we reimagine how to complete the Great Commission, we need to go back to how it all began. The early followers of Jesus turned the world
1: upside down through simple obedience and natural networking. All right, so thank you. I hope that video was helpful you understand what we're talking about when we're talking about disciple-making movements. It's kind of on the fence of whether or not it really counted as flannel graph. But then I saw it used rabbits to illustrate the growth of the church, and I thought, we've, we've got to run with that thing. We can't not use that. So, disciple-making movements is the broad term for what people like Peter and Rhea, and now Fred, and Ethan and Sarah are involved in as they're leading people to Jesus. Now, I want to make sure you hear me loud and clear. I am not someone who believes there's only one way to help people get into the kingdom of God. I believe that I believe the relationship matters. I think that's, that's the key in all of these things. But I'm never going to tell you that there's only one way to do it. But that said, as people launch from here to move cross-culturally, they need some tools in their toolkit, And the tool that these folks have been trained with is called disciple-making movements. And, and Brock and I, as we were talking about what I was going to do with our time this week, we thought that it might be useful for you as a church to hear about the steps of this for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it's what all of us, all the time, are supposed to be doing. We are people who are called to make disciples. And so finding out some new tools, some new approaches, some new ways to visualize visualize and to think about making disciples is a very helpful thing to us. Secondly, we will, Lord willing, be sending a family into the medrim soon. When we do that, we're going to do it well. We want to be a good sending church that sends with excellence. And part of doing something with excellence is understanding the approach of the people that you've sent out. That's why we're going to be doing that so here's how we teach disciple making movements where i work the first step of this is prayer saturation the story of virtually all movements to jesus begins with prayer all the good stories that are worth telling start with people on their knees or on their feet prayer walking through their neighborhoods it matters so much that we tell people that are launching into the field that they need to realize that the bulk of their first year on the field is gonna be dedicated to settling in, learning language, learning culture, and prayer. Now, I'm not talking about praying a few minutes in the morning and before dinner. I'm talking about saturation. I'm talking about soaking a place in prayer in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. It's about researching the spiritual history of places and neighborhoods, finding out who else is already in the city praying with you and joining them, mobilizing your prayer partners, which is going to be us, by the way, to, to be praying along with you. We're talking about warfare prayer, scripture prayer, abiding prayer, lament, contemplative prayer, intercession. Friends, prayer is the work that launches movement. The second step is to begin to identify inside leaders. Jesus tells us something that's pretty important in John chapter 6. In John six forty four, Jesus tells us No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And then I'll raise them up at the last day. It's so important. I want you to hear it again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I, Jesus, will raise them up on the last day. You need to hear, friends, we don't draw people to Jesus. The Father, working through the action of the Holy Spirit and through the Christ, is the one who draws people to himself. God prepares his sons and his daughters to enter into the kingdom in ways that, that, that are so much better than anything we could do. Some of these are those amazing, miraculous stories that we hear about Muslims that meet a man in white in a dream or a vision who tells them that he's the door. And then they wake up the next morning and they go find the one believer they know in their life and they knock on their door and they say, tell me about the man in white, which is what we call a softball in the missions world. Sometimes they are these amazing, miraculous stories that come from cross-cultural workers putting in the hard work. Day in, day out, learning language, learning culture, out serving among the people in order to make friends. Either way. That next step in beginning a movement is in identifying those inside leaders because it's the inside leaders that are going to be the ones who actually start the movement. The outside leader's job is to find the leaders that are on the inside and disciple them to be more like Jesus. Which leads us to step three, leadership development. Once the Father reveals whom he is preparing to lead to Jesus, then you pour your life into them. And this is that life-on-life discipleship that Jesus modeled along the road with 12 of his friends. That the early church modeled every time that they were traveling together, eating together, sharing their belongings together. This is walking with people as they get to know Jesus more. As they take those first steps timid steps in, in, in maybe leading a little bit. As they, as they fail for the first time, as they get back up, you help them expand their capacity to lead. And then this leads us to step four, Lord willing, progressive multiplication. And this is where the stuff starts to look fun. Now, if you're wired right, it was fun from the very beginning, but this is where it starts to look fun. Leaders are multiplying leaders, groups of disciples are multiplying groups. People start to act like family. They, they share stuff in a new way, even though they don't have the same blood running through their veins. You might even start to see large groups form as small pockets of communities get together and believers wanna hang out with other believers. And this leads to step five, holistic societal or cultural transformation. Friends, when Jesus moves into the neighborhood, stuff ought to change. As groups of disciples multiply throughout a culture, things change. How husbands and wives treat each other ought to change when they meet Jesus. How the poor the poor are treated ought to change when we meet Jesus. How refugees, asylum seekers are treated ought to change when we meet Jesus. How outsiders become insiders in our community ought to change whenever we encounter the Christ. Let me give you an example. During our work in Burkina Faso, though, our family, we got to be workers. of living on the edge of the Sahara Desert, how hard life is there, it's also a consequence of people who follow uh, malicious and, and mean gods. Well, eventually Christian grandmas stood up. And Man, how much good in the kingdom is done by Christian grandmas. Christian grandmas stood up and said they would care for the children of deceased women. Because those babies matter to God, And because Jesus has changed them, those babies matter to them too. So as the outsiders, we partnered them with Americans who were able to fund things like formula, all the supplies necessary for that, some clothing, some medical care, and eventually even school fees for some of them. So now, today, more than a couple of hundred children are alive in Burkina Faso because Christian grandmas started acting differently when Jesus came into their hearts. In fact, if you were to travel to Burkina Faso today and hang out among the Dagara tribe for a little while and ask about Christians, probably what you'd be told by non-believers is that those are the people that take in the cursed babies that the rest of us are scared of. And friends, that, that's societal transformation. And that's the kind of stuff that only happens when Jesus moves into the neighborhood through the hearts of the people that he's moved into. And that's exciting stuff. It's great stuff. I'm really, I'm really, if you can't tell, excited about sending a family out to do those kinds of things across an ocean. But the reality is, today, I'm talking with a bunch of you who have gathered here in Tarrant County. So the question then is, what do we do about it? Because the sending of workers cross-culturally actually is also supposed to motivate us to make disciples where we live. So what do we do about these things we've talked about? My suggestion to you is to follow this same pattern that we've talked about already. My first thing I would tell you to do is to pray. I would say pray for your church, pray for your family, pray for your neighborhood. Get out and walk your neighborhood and pray. Maybe not in the afternoon because it's really hot out there this week. But once the sun goes down, get out. God still listens to nighttime prayers too. Get out and pray for your neighborhood and your neighbors that Jesus would move in the homes that immediately surround your house explore new ways to pray or new groups of people to pray for i think we learn a lot about our father by praying for some of his children one easy way that i would recommend to you guys today sign up for a new prayer challenge Uh, many of you uh, joined with us a couple of months ago in a ramadan prayer challenge you received these emails from heritage church where you were able to pray 30 days for muslims and a lot of you have told me how much fun it was to learn about praying in new ways and praying about new people here's another opportunity for this we've started a 10-day buddhist prayer challenge that actually starts today many of us are unfamiliar with the buddhist faith and how, and this will help you understand a little bit more about buddhism so that you can join with believers around the world who are praying for buddhists to come out of darkness and into light and begin to know jesus to enter into those thriving relationships with jesus so you can use that that qr code to sign up for daily emails that'll come over the next 10 days and it's just one of the many ways that you can use to learn how to pray differently, to learn how to pray more, to pray for people that you might not otherwise think to pray about. Second thing I'd say to you is to keep an eye out in your life Look for ways that the Spirit might be moving in new ways in someone's life. I'd also encourage you to consider who in your life might already know Jesus, but could benefit from a little bit more time with you as you together try to walk closer with the Lord to develop those thriving relationships with Jesus. Finally, I would encourage you to consider what changes is God calling you to be a part of making? What people is God causing you to see that others ignore? What little parts of your community tug on your heart in ways that don't seem to tug on everyone else's heart? And then see if there's not something you can do To make a change and before you know it you might actually look up and realize you started changing something because jesus has started moving into the neighborhood now we began this week by talking about how this sermon even though it's a different guy actually does fit into brock's sermon series each of these weeks we flesh out a story using flannel graph we fill in some of the details that we missed and we talk about how it connects to us today but one thing remains this morning what do we learn about the hero of our story from hearing about Peter and Rhea and Fred and Ethan and Sarah. They'll be the first ones to tell you, they're not the heroes of the story. The hero of every good story is our Father in heaven, the Lord. So what do we learn about the character of God through hearing these stories and hearing the nuts and bolts of disciple-making movements? Well, I thought about telling you what I think, but instead, I wrote to some people that actually live in the Mediterranean region, and I asked them, I said, what have you learned about your father from participating in what he's doing among Muslims around the Mediterranean. Here's some of the highlights. First of all, faith is not about an amount, it's about the object. Movement never starts, and lives are never changed because of the impressive size or the depth or the width of someone's faith. Movement begins because of the object of our faith. Our Father in heaven, a tiny seed's worth of faith in a great big God leads to better stuff than a whole ton of faith in the wrong thing, which is so often our own abilities. Second, God doesn't need us to accomplish his will. Rather, he graciously invites us in. He gives us the gift of participating with him in the redemption of his lost children. We at Heritage, we were graciously invited in to participate with Peter and Rhea and with Ethan and Sarah. God is always inviting us into his work if we'll just listen. And whenever we say yes, we're accepting an invitation to maybe be a part of changing things. And third, I want to read to you directly from something that our friend Peter wrote. As I do this, it's going to be helpful if you imagine it in a really cool Hungarian accent. Um, it's, It's a lot better, just trust me. So these are Peter's words. I have been a believer in Jesus for about 30 years. I've been making disciples for eight of those years, the past five of them spent in Southern Europe. Spending time with those from the Middle East whom God is drawing to himself, sharing the gospel and my own life with them, teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded, answering questions, helping them lead others to Jesus has changed my life. I've learned more about God and myself the past five years than the previous 25 years of following Jesus combined. I've had some pretty high highs and some pretty deep lows. I've seen miracles. I've seen people physically healed. I have seen unrestorable relationships reconciled. I've also learned that when we work for Jesus down in the trenches, Satan's arrows fly pretty low and hurt. But I've also learned that in all of this, God continues to do what God has always done. He stoops down, and he lifts us up from the dust, and he gives us hope, and he even gives us a few victories along the way to celebrate. I have learned that sharing the gospel and making disciples is our ministry, but building a community that's transformed from within by the love of Jesus through highs and lows is what our mission is really about. Having seen this in action and for real by starting house churches and Bible discovery groups has been the greatest lesson and joy of my life. And I love the fact that as a church, we've been able to partner just a small bit with a guy like Peter and his bride Rhea as they go about these kinds of things. And finally... These early years of the story of the Medrim teach us that the kingdom still moves at the speed of relationship. The kingdom still advances at the speed of relationship, person to person, family to family. This is how the kingdom of God advances, how the kingdom comes on earth, particularly when you're talking among unreached people groups. These days, God's moving in unusual ways among the Muslims that live around the Mediterranean rim. Relationships are being created with these Muslims and their father and with these Muslims and the believers that surround them. And that is how the kingdom is coming in a new place.